Good morning to everybody. I'm glad that you're here this morning. This morning we are going to be wrapping up the book of 1 Corinthians, yet another book of the Bible. We will be able to say we have preached all the way through verse by verse. So we're going to cover chapter 16 this morning, which is essentially just Paul closing his letter. There are a couple of theological statements, but for the most part it's him sending greetings And so uh, this could very possibly be my shortest sermon for 2017, potentially. (laughs) Don't make that face, Marilyn, because we we don't know for certain. I'm sure you could stretch it out. Oh, I'm sure I could. Don't give him any ideas now. (laughs) We're going to read the whole chapter this morning. Because it's not going to take us a terribly long time because Paul is just kind of adding last minute things after laying out all the theology that he has in this book, after the warnings, after the disciplines that he has put in front of the people of Corinth, he's now just going to say his goodbyes in a general way and give them some last minute instructions. For instance, verse 1 starts with now concerning the collection for the saints. You'll notice that through this whole book, Paul has yet to say anything about that. But he seems to assume that they know all about it. So probably when he was with them, he instructed them. Keep your finger right there in 1 Corinthians. Turn to the book of Romans, now that you've gotten to 1 Corinthians. Turn to Romans 15 for just a moment. Let's spell out Paul's theology of the obligation that the Gentiles have to the Jews. Romans 15, I was going to start around verse 25. Let's start at 22, which starts with for this reason, so I can't start there. Start at verse 20. What about 18? What about 18? Start at verse 18. Keep Alan happy. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed, in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and round about as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ, and thus I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, that I might not build on another man's foundation. But as it is written, they who had no news of him shall see him, and they who have not heard shall understand. For this reason, I have often been hindered from coming to you. But now, with no further place for me in these regions... And since I have had for many years a longing to come to you, whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing, and to be helped on the way there by you, when I have first enjoyed your company for a while, but now I am going to Jerusalem, serving the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia, you know Achaia, right? Achaia is a region of Greece where Corinth lays. So he's talking about the folks in Corinth here. 
for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Okay, so why is this? Why have the people of Achaia and Macedonia decided that a contribution ought to be taken up in order to give to the poor at Jerusalem? Here's his reasoning. Verse 27, yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their, in the Jews' spiritual things, then they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. Does this sound familiar? Paul said oftentimes to the Gentiles and to the believers at large, he said, if I have shared with you my spiritual things, then is it too big a thing that you share your physical things? So that was the exchange. He expected the exchange to occur because he was bringing something more valuable than gold or silver. He was bringing something to them more valuable than they could actually even pay for. So his expectation, just like Christ's expectation, was that those who were preaching the word would go into a city and that the people there would take care of him because they owed a debt. So now he has made this about Jew and Gentile and said the Jews have given their spiritual things, remembering that Jesus was a Jew. He comes out of the lineage of David. He's part of the Davidic covenant. So being a Jewish Messiah who has also saved Gentiles, Paul then says the Gentiles are indebted to the Jews. Now I know that's not very popular these days. Unfortunately, in most reform circles, they say that God's essentially done with the Israelites. He's essentially done with the Jews. He has cast off Israel for all that they've done, even though on Wednesday nights, I think we've disproven that pretty thoroughly because we've seen all the things that the prophets have said about God's faithfulness and ongoing commitment to the people that he has chosen and that he has elected. So it is through the Jews, it is through Israel that the Jewish Messiah has come to the planet and because the Jewish Messiah has reached out to Gentiles and saved them, those Gentiles owe a debt to the Jews. Yes, they were pleased to do so and they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, then they, the Gentiles, are indebted to minister to them also in material things. Therefore, when I have finished this and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go on by way of you to Spain. Back to 1 Corinthians. Paul's intention was to get to Spain. There is nothing in history that tells us he ever made it to Spain. Because when he makes it back to Jerusalem, you know he's bound. And then he pleads all the way to Caesar. Because he is a free Roman citizen, he is able to plead all the way to Caesar. And so he never makes it to Spain, but it was his intention. It was his plan to come through Achaia, to come through Corinth, and then to take an offering to Jerusalem because the Jews are owed a debt from the Gentiles. So here's the way that he says they ought to go about it. Now concerning the collection 
for the saints, those are the saints at Jerusalem, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. So apparently as Paul was traveling from city to city, church to church, he was teaching them that they have a debt to the saints in Jerusalem. Now remember that the saints in Jerusalem are being horribly persecuted because that's where Christianity first got a hold. That's where Christianity grew out from. Which I find, this is the part where I stretch it just a little bit for your sake, which I find fascinating. I find this one of the evidences, one of the proofs of the honesty of Christianity and the honesty of the Bible. Because think about it logically with me. If it is true that Christianity began in Jerusalem, began in Judea, well, that's the very place where the people would know whether or not the things that Paul is writing about actually occurred because they're there. I could understand if the apostles all got together and said, uh, how are we going to promote this thing that we're drumming up right now? How are we going to promote this lie? We were following Jesus. He died at the hands of the Romans, and he's in the grave. We've stolen the body, and now we need to promote this Christian thing so that we can continue because we've backed the wrong horse, but we need to keep the story going. So what's the first thing you're going to do? Logically, if you're liars, you're going to get away from the people who would know you were lying. You would go immediately to the people who didn't know what really happened in Jerusalem. You would go into India, or you would go down into Egypt. You would go north, just away from Jerusalem, because the people in Jerusalem know whether these things happened or not. When you start telling stories about Jesus being killed at the hands of the Jewish leaders and the Gentile leaders and that he was judged during the night by a Jewish court and that he was taken in front of Pontius Pilate, if none of that really happened, well, then the people in Jerusalem are going to know it. If the grave wasn't really empty, the people in Jerusalem are going to know it. If the body was just stolen but he was never actually seen alive, the people in Jerusalem are going to know it. So you're not going to spread that story in Jerusalem. You're going to immediately go somewhere else and tell the story because those people know whether or not you're telling the truth. And yet, all of history, and there's nothing that contradicts this, all of history says that Christianity got its foothold and its beginning in Jerusalem. Now, that's impossible unless these things actually occurred because those are the people who would be the first people to start contradicting and writing. And we have no writings of anybody who says that didn't happen. So what we have within the Bible is an accurate historical synopsis of what actually occurred there in, in Jerusalem specifically and out from Jerusalem went the story of the gospel, from the very people group who would know whether or not these things happened. One thing you would not find in Jerusalem is converts, because they would know, well, that never happened. When you say, Jesus was killed, and they say, no, no he wasn't. Or even worse, I see this all the time online, the atheists online who want to say that Jesus never existed. 
That's how they get rid of Christianity altogether. They just say that he's a fictional character and that he never really existed. Well, if he never really existed, wouldn't the people in Jerusalem be the first people when the apostles start telling the story of Jesus? Wouldn't they be the first ones to say, oh, um, hold on, that's a lie because he never lived. We've never seen him. He never did miracles. He wasn't here. He didn't cleanse the temple. That never occurred. They would know whether or not he was actually there and whether these things actually occurred. And yet... The first church on planet Earth happened in Jerusalem. How do you explain that? You can't begin to explain that any other way except that these things actually historically occurred in Jerusalem. And so the saints, according to Paul, the Gentile saints, owe a debt to the saints in Jerusalem because they were the first people who underwent the loss of their livelihood. And who underwent the persecution. Think of Stephen. Think how early he was stoned. Right away there was persecution against the saints at Jerusalem. And yet they persevered so that the gospel could go to the Gentiles. As a consequence, the Gentiles owe a debt to the Jews. So he says, concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also on the first day of every week, let each one of you put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections may be made when I come. A couple things you can draw from that. First off, it's obvious that the churches were meeting on Sundays. They were no longer meeting on the Sabbath. There still are Seventh-day Adventists. There still are Christian by name, Christian groups who meet on the Sabbath. Or there are Christian groups who meet on Sunday and call that the Sabbath. Which I, I find that even more confusing because that's equal to saying seven is now one, which makes Christians sound like they don't know how to do math. There's no way to say that the Sabbath, which is Saturday, is now Sunday. But folks who don't understand the very distinct difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant have a tendency to mix and match the legalistic Old Testament law, especially those parts that serve their traditions, and then you end up with churches that meet on Saturdays because they're keeping the Sabbath. Get this right. The Sabbath was a sign and token of the law of Moses. And if you are keeping Sabbath specifically. Now, let me also say, I don't care what day the saints meet. We meet here on Wednesdays. There's nothing special about Wednesdays. I don't care if... The saints choose to meet on Saturday. But if they meet on Saturday because they are keeping Sabbath, then they are trying specifically to keep some portion of the law. And as James has said, if you're guilty of any one part of the law, you're guilty of all of it. So if you break the Sabbath, now that you're keeping Sabbath, if you break the Sabbath, you're guilty of the whole law. And if you start your car, which starts a spark, which makes a fire, you're as guilty as the man collecting sticks to make a fire on the Sabbath. People are trying to keep Sabbath and yet breaking Sabbath everywhere. So what they have to do is say, I'm keeping Sabbath, but the Sabbath rules have changed. 
And you can't prove that. You cannot prove that the law has changed in any wit. If you are keeping Sabbath, you are begging God to judge you according to the Sabbath rules and according to the law. But the church in the first century, according to the book of Acts and according to what Paul writes here, the church met on Sunday mornings because Christ raised on Sunday morning. And because we know that he raised on the first day of the week, the church, in order to separate itself, especially at Jerusalem, the church to separate itself from the legal rules of the Mosaic law, did not keep Sabbath. It did not meet on Saturdays. The church met on Sundays to separate itself from the legal rules. And so Paul says here again, on the first day of the week. Why would he say that? Because that's when the church would meet. And then they would take up a collection. So on the first day of every week, let each one of you put aside and save as he may prosper, that no collections be made when I come. So Paul didn't want to arrive there and then start taking up a collection. He wanted people to give systematically, to do it every week. And that way, when he came, they could just give him the collection, which he would then take to the saints at Jerusalem. Verse 3, And when I arrive, whomever you approve, I shall send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it is fitting for me to go also, then they will go with me. But I shall come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I am going through Macedonia. And perhaps I shall stay with you or even spend the winter that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. For I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time if the Lord permits. Paul actually did have a chance to do that. He spent three months, according to the book of Acts, he spends three months going back to that area of Greece. And so it appears that he did get a chance to winter there. But it was his intention to go back and spend time with these people, significant time, because the learning of Christianity takes time. This is not something that you can just grasp in a day. You can't stop by one morning and we'll fill you full of Christianity and you're good to go for the rest of your life. How many years have we been at this? Fifteen and a half now, working our way verse by verse through the Bible. And we've still got so many books to go through. Some people say, I preach a long time. But that's because some things take a long time. Let's see, I have to pick somebody who has a particular uh, skill. I'm going to pick on Jeff. He's a coder. Would you call yourself a coder, programmer? programmer and he sits at his computer and he types like a ferret on crack you should you, you should just he types like a madman okay now did you just sit down and do that did you just suddenly know how to code no it took you a while i remember you talking about taking some microsoft classes right and so you had to learn the language, and you had to learn the typing and the speed and all that. So what you can do now is the result of years of doing it, right? Same thing with Christianity. Even though your salvation 
is a result of God interrupting your life, introducing himself to you, convicting you of your sin, putting his Holy Spirit inside you, and you coming to recognize your need of him, that's the salvation experience. But you don't automatically at that moment know everything about the Bible. Which is why, I think, which is why Paul says that gifts are given to the church. And among those gifts, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. teachers, Because you need to be taught Christianity. You don't just know it automatically. So Paul didn't want to just sweep through Corinth and say hi. He wanted to come and stay. And remember that Paul had a tendency to preach all night long. He would preach until people fell asleep and fell down from windows dead. I mean, Paul would just contend for the scripture. And so I think that shows us. I mean, if even Paul had to spend that kind of time doing it, that shows us that these things take time. So a little here, a little there. And bit by bit, it all builds up in your mind. How often have you been listening to the teaching of the word when suddenly some puzzle piece that you didn't get before suddenly fell into place? Suddenly you get it. You go, oh, has that always been there? I didn't know that was there. Well, why didn't you know that when you became a Christian? Because the process is a teaching and a revelatory process. So Paul wants to spend time with them. But I shall come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I am going through Macedonia, and perhaps I shall stay with you, even spend the winter, that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. For I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time, if the Lord permits." Let me just also comment on that for just a moment. Notice how often Paul uses that phrase, if the Lord permits. Because he makes his plans just like we all make our plans. We all have plans and intentions of what it is we're going to do. But ultimately, his concept of God's sovereign control of everything in his life was so prominent in his mind that he recognized That even though he intended to go to Spain, he might not make it there. And even though he planned to come back to Corinth, he hoped that the Lord would allow him to go there. I don't think when Paul wrote that, that he was intending, because he's probably writing from Ephesus, I don't think it was his plan that uh, in a couple of years he was going to be in prison in Rome. That wasn't the plan. He writes to the Romans and says, I plan to come see you, but I don't think he knew it was going to be in chains. I don't think he knew that there was house arrest coming or a beheading. He didn't know that's what was coming. So with everything that he said he was going to do, he also added, if the Lord wills, that's what I'll do. The same thing that James says. We shouldn't say, I'm going to go somewhere. I'm going to go here and there into that city, and I'm going to get myself wealth, and I'm going to do these things. i got plans. We ought to say, if the Lord wills. I'll do these things. There's a phrase that some of my preacher friends use that I actually like. I've kind of adopted this phrase. They say, I'm going to do this or that or I'll come see you. And the phrase they add is, the Lord saying the same. 
So if God says the same thing, then I'll do it. Jonah, I like that phrase. Jonah had plans. Yeah. Jonah had plenty of plans, didn't he? Yeah. Don't you think Paul had plans? He was on his way to go kill Christians. He had plans, but God had other plans. I will show him what great things he must suffer for my name. Those were God's plans. Paul's plans were, I'm rich and powerful and I'll go kill some Christians. I almost said, I'm going to go kill me some Christians. And I, <laughs> and I caught myself mid-sentence, but... But I shall remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. Notice that Paul is still marking time by the feasts that are on the Jewish calendar. I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. Why? Notice this again. This is one of those phrases that frustrates me. It's like Paul writing that it's given to us to believe. I just, I love that phrase. It's given to us to believe. I wish that he had put a period right there because then he finishes his sentence by saying, and to suffer for his sake. It's given to us to believe and to suffer. And that frustrates me. I would like to just do the believe part and and just skip the suffer part. Well, here's Paul again saying in verse 9, I'm going to stay in Ephesus because a wide door for effective service has opened to me. There are believers here in Ephesus. There are people who are understanding and God is enlightening them and there's this wide and effectual door open to me. Wouldn't it be great if he could just stop right there? But remember what we read last week or the week before where he was saying, why do I put up with this? If what I'm saying isn't true, why do I suffer the way that I suffer? And he specifically mentioned Wild beasts in Ephesus, which I think is a euphemism for the people who withstood him at Ephesus. For a wide and effectual door is open for me at Ephesus. Look at the second half of the sentence. And there are many adversaries. That's never changed. Anytime that you go out and preach the gospel of Christ, anytime you take a stand for the gospel of Christ, God is going to sovereignly open the doors that need to be opened. And he's going to give you opportunity as he sees fit. But there's always going to be adversaries. There's always going to be people who withstand it. And if you don't believe me, just post a video about Christianity on YouTube and see how long it is before the adversaries come out. Because they do. And they're wild and they're wicked. Now, verse 10. Now, if Timothy comes, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid, for he is doing the Lord's work as I also am. Let no one, therefore, despise him. Why would anyone despise Timothy, according to what Paul's written? Because he was young. He was a young man. I so frequently talk about the fact that the gospel not only attracts Men, which, which I like, and I'm not talking you women down at all, so back off me, man. <laughs> but the gospel rightly preached, the gospel rightly divided, attracts men. And I like seeing young men attracted to the gospel. Because it assures me, since I am not a young man, 
since Gladys said I'm no longer allowed to say I'm getting old. No, I didn't say that. You said I, I can't talk about death or getting old anymore. That's what you said. Oh, good that I get to say I'm old. So I'm old. And, <laughs> and as I'm getting older, it gives me great confidence to see the young men that God is raising up. Because I know the gospel is in good hands. And I know full well that I don't have to be here for the gospel to continue and for the gospel to be carried on by the young and the strong men who know the truth and are willing to say the truth, who are willing to stand on the truth and advance the truth. And so Paul had a young man. He had Timothy. And he said, don't let anybody despise you because of your age. Because the truth is the truth. If it's an old man who tells you the truth, like I hope to be doing now, or if it's a young man that tells you the truth, sometimes we hear Josiah stand up here and read scripture and pray for us, and he, and he tells us the truth. And he's a young man. And it always makes me happy to see young men doing this who are committed to the word, who are committed to the Bible, who are committed to the people of God, and who are willing to take a stand. Has it always been easy, Josiah? No, it isn't. I've heard the stories. You've told me the stories of your high school buddies who just didn't want to hear it. But he wasn't afraid to take a stand. So when Timothy comes, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid. For he is doing the Lord's work, as I also am. But let no one, therefore, despise him. But send him on his way in peace, so that he may come to me, for I expect him with the brethren. But concerning Apollos, our brother, I encouraged him greatly to come to you with the brethren. And it was not at all his desire to come now, but he will come when he has opportunity. Now, Apollos, as you might remember, has a very large footprint in, in Corinth. You remember Apollos? Do you remember the story of Apollos? I, I see some yeses and some noes. Turn to Acts 18 for a minute. Keep your finger right there in 1 Corinthians. Turn to Acts 18, and we'll be reacquainted with Apollos. Turn to Acts 18, let's start around 23. We're going to be introduced to an Alexandrian Jew, a Hellenized Jew by the name of Apollos. Having spent some time, I'm in Acts 18, verse 23. Having spent some time there, he, that's talking about Paul, he departed and passed successively through the Galatian region and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a certain Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately, the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. So he had yet to be baptized 
into the name of Christ and was probably preaching the baptism of repentance because that's what John was preaching. He began to speak out boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila, who you're going to hear about in 1 Corinthians 16, when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wanted to go across to Achaia, where's Achaia? That's Corinth. The brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he had arrived, he helped greatly those who had believed through grace. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. I don't have time this morning, unless I'm going to follow Steve's admonition to stretch it. But I don't have time this morning to make a lot of Apollos, but you'll notice that Apollos didn't understand Christ fully orbed. But he did understand him enough that he had John's baptism and he had heard about Christ. He understood him and was preaching him. And he had to be taken aside and taught Christ more perfectly, taught the things of God more perfectly. But he was an eloquent man. He was a good speaker, which is why at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, we read that there were factions within the Corinthian church, and people were saying, well, I'm of Paul, and others were saying, I'm of Cephas. Peter was here, and I'm, a, I'm of Peter. He baptized me. And others were saying, I'm of Apollos. And so Paul had to argue, well, who is Paul? Who is Peter? Who is Apollos? He says, I planted, they watered, but the increase is from God. So Apollos had a very big footprint there in Corinth, so naturally Paul would want him to come back to Corinth regularly to encourage the saints and continue teaching them. Concerning Apollos, I'm back in 1 Corinthians 16, concerning Apollos, our brother, I encouraged him greatly to come to you with the brethren, and it was not at all his desire to come right now, but he may come to you when he has an opportunity. So, verse 13. Now here Paul is going to give five directives to the church, and I think this summarizes everything he has written in the book so far. Now remember that after this book arrives, after this letter arrives, and after he has instructed the church, that they are immediately going to come opposing forces, who are going to try to withstand Paul. So he's going to have to write yet again. And he's going to have to come and be with them for three months. He's continually having to tell them the truth of Christ because there are so many forces that are speaking so many divergent things that Paul has to keep them on the straight and narrow. Because people have a tendency, like sheep, to wander off. And this is why it's so important to stay under the sound of the gospel. This is why it's so important that you feed your mind and your soul regularly with the sound of the gospel. Because left to yourself, you wander off. I don't know how many people in this room have had this experience. But I can name names right now, which I won't do. But there are people who, who are used to going to church, used to being part of the community, used to being with the saints every Sunday, and then they'll miss a Sunday. And then they'll miss two Sundays. By the time they've missed three, it's habit now. By the time they miss four, it's just a way of life. 
And then we never see them again. And then months go by. And then they call me. And they go, we're still out here listening. And I say, well, that's the curse of the internet. You think that just listening is like being together with the saints. And it's not. And then they'll call and say, we don't listen as much as we used to. And they just kind of fade away. Everybody in this room was nodding while I was saying that because you know you're all thinking of somebody in your heads. Because it happens so frequently, you have to keep yourself under the sound of the gospel, under the sound of the word of God, and you have to keep assembling with the saints. I think that's why the writer of Hebrews says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together, because the assembly of all of us together does us a great deal of good. Not only in the word, but in the fellowship. And we all need the encouragement. And so Paul says these five things about your Christian faith, your Christian life, knowing that opposition is coming, knowing that the world is going to say that you shouldn't be doing this. Christianity, it's just a crutch. Oh, Jesus, he never existed. These things are going to come at you from every side. So here are the five things you need to be careful to do. First, be on alert. It's the first thing Paul writes. Why do you need to be on alert? What does be on alert mean? It means be awake. Be aware of what's happening. Be aware of your surroundings. Okay, I'm going to talk about it. <clears throat> this drives me crazy. This is one of my pet peeves. I've even given it a name. I call it angle walking. Have you ever run into angle walkers? You're walking through like a grocery store and you're walking down the aisle of a grocery store and there's someone in front of you who is not aware of their surroundings and they keep cutting you off and walking in front of you and angle walking. This drives me crazy because I think be alert, <laughs> be aware of your surroundings. You're in public. There are other people here. Well, I think that's what Paul's getting at, too. Be alert. Be aware. Be aware of your surroundings. Know what you're doing. Do not be passive in this thing. Do not take this Christianity for granted. Do not take the fact that the God of ages has enlightened you and drawn you to himself. Don't ever get bored with that fact. Don't ever get bored with the fact that the God of ages who was under no obligation to you chose you and drew you and has eternally promised you presence with him in his eternal glory. How do you ever get tired of that? And yet the forces of this world are going to come at you from every side constantly telling you how wrong you are. So be alert. Be aware of your surroundings. Know that these things are coming. Be ready. Be awake. Secondly, stand firm in the faith. We have read this phrase so many times from Paul's pen. How many times have we heard, stand fast? Stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ has set you free. Stand fast. Why do you have to tell people that all the time? I assume that whenever there's a command in the Bible... It's because you wouldn't naturally do it. Otherwise, it doesn't need to be commanded. 
you will notice there are no commands in the Bible that say, breathe regularly. Because you're going to do that anyway. You don't need to be told. When you're hungry, have a bite to eat. You're going to do that. But there is a command over and over again, constantly, continually, to stand fast in this Christianity. Why? Why would Paul feel the need to keep saying, stand fast? You need to be told. Because you need to be told. Because all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to our own way. Our natural proclivity is to say, yeah, I got this, but I'm busy. I got things to do. Paul says you've got to stand on it, and you've got to stand fast, and you've got to stand firm, because the winds of opposition are coming. And the winds of opposition are going to blow you over if you don't stand firm, if you don't stand fast on what you believe. It's not just, I know this. It's, I know this because the God of ages has revealed this. I know this because the Bible is demonstrably, historically accurate. I know this because the God of everything who made everything chose me and told me his truth and drew me to himself. And there's no way you're going to talk me out of that. I'm going to stand fast in this despite the opposition because Paul knows as well as anybody that the opposition is real, the opposition is fierce, and the opposition is coming. So you've got to stand fast. So, so far, be alert, stand firm in the faith, and then I'm sorry, women, but the next one says, act like men. Men, traditionally, think about in a patriarchal society, Because the Greek is actually be like men. Because men were brave and strong and would protect the women. And so he says in your Christian faith, you should be that way. You should be brave and strong. If you're going to stand against the opposition, if you're going to stand firm, then you should act the way men act. The way men who are prepared for battle would act. How often does Paul use this battle analogy? How often does he say that we have to be outfitted we have to have our shield of faith and we have to be ready to withstand the slings and arrows this is all battle language we need to be prepared and dressed and ready mentally prepared for the battle because the battle is coming so be on alert stand firm in the faith act like men be strong why do you have to be strong I mean, why does he have to give you that command? It's because, as Tom just said, you're not naturally going to do it. Let me put it this way. I like hard-headed Christianity. I like Christianity that takes a stand and says, I know what I believe, and I'm willing to take the thumps and the bruises that go with it because you're not going to talk me out of this. I like hard-headed Christianity. I like Christianity that says, I know what I know because I know that I know. And you're not going to talk me out of that. Because the opposition, again, the opposition is coming. You have to stand firm in the faith. You have to be strong. You have to quit you like men. And then just about the time that Paul's got all of this 
be careful stand firm be alert be like men be strong he wraps it all up by saying and love one another no matter what you do in everything you do make sure that love is the driving force behind it what he's saying here takes courage what he's saying here takes strength stand there's a big difference between somebody who's lollygagging and somebody who's standing fast. Or steadfast is a good word to put in. Steadfast. Steadfast. Absolutely. Right. So Paul is warning them that it's going to take alertness, it's going to take firmness, it's going to take commitment to the faith, it's going to take strength. But verse 14, let all that you do be done in love because love is the primary principle not love like emotional love oh I love you so much I love you today I don't love you tomorrow that kind of passing human love it's the agape love that means walking in the commandments of the Lord right it's it got is an action aspect to it it has an action aspect to it in fact it is that sacrificial kind of love where you're doing what Paul has said putting others ahead of yourself and by putting others' concerns ahead of your own concerns, you are sacrificially loving the other person. And unlike, to pick up on your point, Wolf, unlike human love, which is, I'll love you as long as you love me, but there are things you can do that will change my love for you. Like you just said, it's not a feeling, it's an action, it's an act of the will, it's a determination it's an action, I will love you, I will sacrifice for you. It is an action that people do because the word of God says that we ought to love one another. And that only comes through God uh, generating that within us. It can only come. Where else can it come from? Our default would not be that way. Our default would not be that way. And you can prove that, by the way. Get around unbelievers for a while. Do you see a great deal of sacrifice? No. No. You see the me first attitude. Me first, whatever I got to do. I'll steamroll you as long as I get mine. That's the way unbelievers act. So I find it remarkable when believers are willing to sacrifice on behalf of other people. And that's the word that he's using here. You're right. It's agape. So let all things that you do be done with love. So now he starts wrapping up the letter. Now I urge you, brethren, as you know, the household of Stephanus, that they were the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints, that you also be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in the work and in the labors. Paul is using that word subjection the same way he's saying women should be in subjection to their own husbands. We've talked about this at length, that it's willing subjection for the sake of peace within the church, for the sake of peace within the household, for the sake of the community of believers. It's part of our sacrifice, that we would sacrifice ourselves to each other, and so we would subject ourselves to each other and to the leaders that God has placed within the church. So subject yourself, be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in the work and on the labors. Verse 17, 
and I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have supplied what is lacking on your part. All the way through this letter to the Corinthians, he has been talking about the fact that they have not been supporting him the way they ought to. He's going to continue saying that in 2 Corinthians. But apparently, when these three men came to him, they did bring ample supply, food, money, whatever Paul needed, that was actually lacking from the church at Corinth. And so Paul said, they have supplied what was lacking on your part, for they have refreshed my spirit and yours Therefore, acknowledge such men. It is also possible that in their travels from Corinth to Paul and then back to Corinth, that they may be the men who carried these letters. They may be the men who took these letters back and forth between Paul and the church. So verse 19, now we start in his goodbye. The churches of Asia greet you, Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. This greeting is by my own hand. You know that Paul used an amanuensis. Paul used a secretary who did most of the writing for him. And so in order for the church at Corinth to know that this letter actually came from Paul, apparently Paul wrote his own name at the end in his own hand so that they would recognize Paul's signature on the letter. So this greeting is in my own hand. Verse 20, uh, was it just last men's meeting? I think it was the last men's meeting. We talked about this, the holy kiss. So we'll let some of you women in on it because already some of you are smirking. Because that seems like a funny idea to us now. And my question is, why? You know, as I travel in these various different churches and different congregations and conferences that I get invited to, there is a custom in some of those churches that they do greet each other with a holy kiss. The first time that that happened to me, it surprised me. It kind of shocked me. And of all people to do it, this is how shocking it was. I still remember the time, the place, and the person. I mean, that's how shocking. But it was Barney Johnson who's been here many, many times. You know Barney. We love Barney. But Barney hugged me and kissed me on the cheek. And I was sort of taken aback. I thought, oh, have we taken our relationship to a new level now? (laughs) So let me pass along something that Elder Ward said to me years ago because I shared it with the men's meeting, and I do think it's significant. He said that one of the worst things that has ever happened to the concept of the holy kiss is the rise of homosexuality within our society. Because now a holy kiss between men, or men saying how much they love each other, or men embracing each other, now has, just as you can tell by the nervous laughter, it now has a certain character that it didn't used to have. Or even read about David and his relationship with Jonathan. Now among the rampant homosexuals out there, they have taken the story of David and Jonathan, and use that as an example of homosexuality in the Bible, which is outrageous. Because within the people of God, there ought to be a love and a fellowship and a 
demonstrative kind of fellowship where we ought to be able to hug each other and we ought to be able to kiss each other on the cheek, a kiss that Paul describes as a kiss of brotherhood, a kiss of fellowship. He calls it his, uh, his holy kiss. But it's not. But it's not a bro hug. Because Paul uses this word specifically, holy. He uses the word holy the same way that you would speak of things that have been dedicated to God that that reside in the temple. Whether we're talking about the holy temple, whether we're talking about the holy table of the Lord, the holy candlesticks, holy sacrifices, he says, greet one another with a holy kiss. And what he means by that adjective is, there is nothing sexual about it. Before the Lord. Absolutely, it's before the Lord. There is nothing about it that is, that is in any way inappropriate. In fact, it is something dedicated to God, set aside for God's exclusive use. It is a, a holy kiss. Because I would not meet... an unbeliever on the street and feel the urge to hug and kiss them. But I see brethren that I haven't seen in many months in some of these conferences I go to and they'll hug and kiss each other and I'm to the point where I hug and kiss them too because I recognize that it is a holy kiss. There is nothing homosexual about it. And sadly, because of the homosexual agenda in America these days, what was once holy has become questionable. And I think that's a shame. I think we ought to go back to the point where we recognize that some things can be dedicated to God on a level where there's no question about the the impurity of it. We have lost the sense of holiness. I think it particularly in this country, because in Europe and Asian countries... They now, still Asia, kiss. Uh, Middle Eastern yeah. you know, people are very affectionate. Right. Now, I don't expect that the minute this service is over, that you men are all going to grab each other. Now, see, here I go again. But, but I do expect that we raise our level of what we understand as genuinely holy, that we don't lose that concept and that we not turn it over to the world, that we not give it to the world to go ahead and trample on, that we take the things of God as being the things of God, and we continue to honor them as the things of God, and let the world do whatever the world is going to do, but among us we know what genuine, righteous, holy activity looks like. And that begins with our affection and our love and our sacrifice for one another. Yes, ma'am. My question is, in the culture at that time, did people greet each other with a kiss? Yeah, but I even think that that's why Paul added the adjective. But, I mean, did they? Yes, yes, yes. Which is kind of like Wolfgang was saying, that in some Middle Eastern cultures and stuff, or in French cultures, you'll still see men kiss each cheek when they greet each other. But Paul wasn't just saying greet each other with a kiss, which even if that were the culture, he's taking it into a different atmosphere. Greet each other with a holy kiss. Greet each other with a recognition 
that we're going to be together forever. We're going to be together in eternity. We serve the same God. We are saved by the same Christ. We share a common spirit. We share a common baptism. We are part of a common church. And as a result, we love each other in a way that we don't love the people who are not part of this community of believers. Does that make sense? Okay. Last sentence then. Look at verse 22. And if anyone does not love the Lord, now this, this fits perfectly with what we were just saying about a holy kiss. When you meet somebody who's of the Lord, when you meet your brethren, there's a holiness to that. There is a separateness to that. But anyone who does not love the Lord, let him be. It's the word anathema. So if anybody from the world, anybody who doesn't love the Lord, then they are ultimately going to be judged by God. They're going to be burned as a sacrifice for God's glory, which is what the word anathema means. But he's talking about the distinction between the church and the non-church. Within the church, sacrifice for each other, love each other, greet each other with a holy kiss. Those that are on the outside, let them be anathema. Paul divides all of humanity into two camps. Those that belong to Christ, those that don't belong to Christ. And his concern, his teaching concern, his giving concern, his sacrificing concern, his loving concern is for those that are in Christ. God will deal with those who are not. Far too much, I think, of what purports to be Christian preaching today is very concerned with those who are not. But Paul is writing to, Paul is concerned with, Paul is instructing, Paul is teaching, Paul is leading those that are in Christ. And among those, we ought to stand fast, we ought to be alert, we ought to act like men, we ought to be strong, but then we ought to sacrifice for each other. We ought to greet each other in a way that we don't greet the world. And as far as the world is concerned, let them be anathema. The next word is Maranatha. Christ is near. Now, I think that Paul expected Christ in his own lifetime. Certainly all the language appears that Paul expected Christ to come back in his own lifetime. But we, right now, standing here right now, we are closer to the return of Christ than Paul was. For 2,000 years, people have been expecting the return of Christ. I don't know if he's going to make it back in my lifetime. I'm making it tougher on him. I would make a, some kind of comment about my life drawing to a close here, but Gladys won't let me. And so I see that most of my life is behind me now. And I keep hoping that Christ is going to be back before I leave this planet. But even if I leave and go to the grave before Christ comes back, I'm closer to him now than I've ever been or than the church has ever been. Tomorrow I'll be closer yet. Christ is coming back. And the reason Paul puts that, Maranatha, Christ is near, is because everything we do, how we love each other, how we stand in the faith, how we treat each other, how we sacrifice for each other, all ought to be predicated on the reality Christ is near. Christ is near. Christ is near. So let everything within the church be done in love with the recognition, with the reality that Christ is near. And the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ 
be with you all, which is my constant hope and prayer for all of you, that through everything you have to encounter in this lifetime, the grace of God is with you, taking you through all the hardships of this life. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. That was 1 Corinthians. Next week, we will start the book of Zephaniah. That's a joke. Next week, <laughs> next week we'll begin 2 Corinthians. Yay! They love 2 Corinthians up here. I don't know. So next week, we will start 2 Corinthians. Paul has to write to them again because he's written to them once and he's corrected them. And then there are going to be the enemies, the opposition, like always, that are going to come in and say, Paul doesn't know what he's talking about. Paul doesn't know. And there are going to be people who feel like Paul was too harsh. Paul was just being too hard on us. And so he has to write another letter. This is actually the third letter that he has to write to them and say, okay, I understand the opposition. Okay, I understand that you didn't like what I said. And in some ways, he's going to kind of pull back and in some ways is going to be more instructive even again he's going to be a little conciliatory and say I'm sorry I didn't mean to hurt you but telling people the truth sometimes hurts and that's what he's going to get at so we'll start 2 Corinthians next week as we began this morning I promised you that this morning might be one of my shorter sermons turns out I lied (laughs) and uh, I would apologize for that but I won't Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org and join us next time when we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.